So what I'm going to try and do is talk about some of the kind of um, theoretical background, um, some of which has already been alluded to. Um, and I think this kind of, I hope this will provide a context for more, well, the different um, things that all of us are doing in our different ways. Because um, there are various things that cross-cut between historians, anthropologists, archaeologists, archivists, social historians, whatever, however we want to um, call, our, call ourselves. Um, so, just to remind you that this is funded by a UK programme of research called Care for the Future, and one of the things that they want to stress is that reflecting on the past helps us or enables us to think differently about the future. And so that it all, they also want us to reflect on the sources that re researchers perhaps far, far in the future will use when they do their research. So one of the things that I like to try and think about is doing tomorrow's archaeology today. It prompts questions about what might enter the archaeological record and what an uh, archaeologist might make of it in, say, 2,000 years' time. So, um, one of the things you find in some bits of philosophy of time is this idea of the thin red line. Um, the thin red line of actuality, which threads its way through myriads uh, roads not taken, the possible worlds created by choices made, the options avoided. And it's common when having these sorts of discussion to engage in historical speculation about those roads not taken, what might have happened if things had turned out differently. So simulations are used to rerun history on the basis of slightly different parameters to see what difference they might have made. And so you can engage in different forms of counterfactual history. So, for example, there are people in computing here who have been doing modelling of the Spanish flu epidemic after the First World War and looking at what would have happened. One of the things they've asked is what would have happened if there had been no First World War. Because one of the reasons that the flu epidemic spread so fast was it happened right at the end, all the troops were going back. Mm. So, you know, you can, they can use their simulation to explore that. Or what would have happened if the war had lasted longer? If it had gone on to 1920? And again, you get different... Well, critically, you get different numbers of people who would have died. Um, anyway, so you can call this the study of pasts, of times past or past times, not the past. What I want to do is emphasise the plural. More than that, I want to make plural, or pluralise, if I can say that word, both present and future. So rather than thinking about past, present and future, I want to think about pasts, presents, futures. And now I'll briefly consider each of those before continuing to discuss how these may interconnect. 
So I've just been arguing for pluralizing the past on the basis of hypothetical or possible scenarios. There's another way, though, in which the past is or should be seen as plural. Multiple viewpoints, different interest groups and different scales each have different histories, different understandings of what's going on and how things are unfolding. So, influenced by the Indian Subaltern Studies Group on the one hand, arguments from feminism and gender studies on the other, we're now more sensitive to ways in which women's history might be a very different thing from men's history, how the accounts of powerful male actors might obfuscate and be misleading about events of wide significance to many. And of course, this is all before we start including ethnicities into the mix of different perspectives. It's not only the large centralised groups that are or should dominate the writing of history. And when I gave a version of this paper in Yaoundé, I had to apologise to the various Cameroonian historians in the audience who came from those big groups. But the group I primarily work with in Cameroon is a very small, subjugated one. Um, so those smaller groups may be beneath the regard of the rulers, but in the abstract we need to recognise that they too have their histories and these may be very different from those of the larger groups. So as Bruce Connell and I argued a few years back, the situation is a fractal one. At every level there's a different history belonging to a different past. These resemble but are not the same as the histories or pasts from other levels. And one from con conclusion to, from this is to move from thinking about the past and its singularity, and with that the idea of a concomitant single history, to thinking about plural pasts and, of course, related histories. Um, and, oh, well, no, I'll skip a quote. Um, so, having argued for different pasts, it's easy to apply the same style of argument to the present. So, um, George Kubler discussed in the 60s the plural present. Different groups have different understandings of the present. It is best seen as multiple, not singular. Not one present with a single truth, but a series of linked presents, each with its own and interconnected set of truths. I should stress, though, that I do not see this as a statement, as this statement, as committing me to any form of hard relativism. I see um, the idea of, um, what do I want to say, um, the interconnections as setting constraints um, on um, and any sort of hard relativism. So, on the basis of interconnections between past, present and future, Patrick Bayat argues for what he calls a reconstructive present. And for him, the present is that in which the representation or meaning of the past and future are continually altered. People, people regularly reassess the past and as a consequence start thinking differently about the future. And my old colleague um, from University of Kent, David Reason, um, has well, I've you know, been discussing this with him, and he's emailed me to say we tend to assume that there is less of a problem knowing the present than in knowing future or past. However, a moment's reflection tells us how we ordinarily and routinely don't know what's going on now, and that we often revise our warrantable accounts of some present in response to our appreciation 
not only of unfolding events, but also of a new understanding of the past. And I would add also about um, a new orientation to the future. Um, so I think that all of those sorts of approaches, the net effect is to pluralise the present. And then if we turn to the future, we can establish quite easily an idea of multiple futures, not only as um, things of science fiction and quantum physics. Lots of science fiction writers or fiction writers have made um, um, use of different futures. What will the world like, be like in a future if this happened? What would it be like if that happened? Philosophically, we quickly get into complex um, issues which have been discussed since Aristotle. Is there a truth about tomorrow's sea battle? About who will win t tomorrow's sea battle? Is the problem an epistemological one? We simply do not know what will happen, but there is something to know. Or is the world less structured? So here and now, there really isn't anything, any single object of no knowledge to know about tomorrow. So going back to these ideas of the thin red line, lots of philosophers see it as ceasing in the present, not extending forwards into the future. For them, it threads backwards only, because otherwise we live in a deterministic universe in which we have only the illusion of choice. Some people, indeed, think that that is the case, especially those practicing particular forms of various religions of the book. However, albeit contentiously, the future seems to be open. We make decisions, we act in the world in ways that affect the course of events. On this view, the thin red line ends in the present. It is only traceable in retrospect. It is created, you can say, in the process of becoming. However, if you think we live in a deterministic universe, then we can establish where it will go and we can shape our present decisions accordingly. Now, um, I think it was Bren mentioned um, Barbara Adams' book, um, Future, Matter, Future Matters, and she, well, she and Chris Groves, it's a co-authored thing. Um, they um, refer this back to John Berry and his idea of progress, where he argues that providence and progress are incompatible. A true future orientation, he suggests, is only possible when the future is no longer pre-given as future present, but arises from the actions in the present. In our terms, that's Adam and Groves, this is the difference between the providential future present and progress tied to the creation of present futures, and they make a huge lot on the distinction between future present and present futures. So, Work on divination, which of course I've done loads of, forecast diagnosis appear differently depending on the philosophical position taken. However, when we change our understanding of the past, our understanding of the course of the thin red line also changes. The past may not be as unchanging as it appears, as it appears, sorry. Archives and museums have to actively manage their collections in the light of changing understandings of what their collections contain and what they mean in the present, let alone what they will be taken to mean in some unspecified future. So Paula Ahmad 
working on a film archive in Paris encourages us to view an archive as a bet against the future, betting that the records will be found useful. Another way of approaching this is to try and develop an approach which is symmetrical to both pasts and futures. So we might want to take um, Susanna Radstone's idea of regimes of memory, which encourages us to appreciate the social constructedness of memory, and add to that an idea of regimes of anticipation. This might give us a handle of how to, weigh, weigh, how to think about ways in which we care about the future and how present cares, attitudes and decisions have constraining influences, to say the least, on subsequent futures and subsequent pasts, I want to say. Present, future, present actions are future-oriented in various different and interesting ways. They are also past-oriented. There are important differences depending on whether we are thinking about short-term or longer-term futures. I'm interested in this because there seems no philosophical or conceptual difference, but there are dramatic differences in attitude. Mundane prediction Anticipation is pervasive and everywhere. I see a car approaching in the distance. I know I can cross the road safely before it gets here. As you talk, I anticipate you are about to stop speaking and I prepare to, to respond. I, saw, I see the ball coming. I raise my hand to catch it. I turn the oven on so it can warm up before putting in the roast, etc., etc. I've got lots of examples. Um... Other examples cover longer duration, cooking food, and possibly growing crops. Linguistic performance, for once actually, both written and oral, mixes short-term pasts and futures. As I read or listen, I keep what I have just read or heard in mind as I process the following parts of a sentence. In long sentences, think Proust, and especially in... Um, subject-object-verb languages, Latin being the classic example, one has to hold much in mind before knowing the action involved. Um, in conversation, as I've just said, you anticipate the end of a sentence in order to be ready to start speaking. And lots of conversation analysis demonstrates that the gaps between speakers are usually extremely tight. So our presence as linguistic actors are actually flowing amalgams of recent pasts, presents and futures. And all of this muddies the philosophical waters. In other, in other domains, we have to deal with duration as essential parts of the objects of study. Music, the spoken word, film or video. And... Um, because of this, Paula Ahmad, again, considers film as an archive-inflected medium. So, phenomenologically, I think, the present is not a flowing instant. It's not a flowing instant. It demonstrably has extension or duration. I'm not going to try and resolve the philo philosophical issues here, but I want to flag that there is huge complexity in... The, the philosophical background here and there's also lots of controversies coming out of um, quantum theory and cosmology 
which I will allude to a bit later, but it's beyond me. Um, to an ex- yeah. um, farming seems to fall on the cusp between the short term and the long term. On the, on the cusp between long-term and short-term prediction. The routine of the annual cycle robs it of the sense of uncertainty which accompanies other t- examples of forecasting, although when natural disasters result in cl- crop failure, we realise the uncertainty was always there. And there's Bourdieu's early discussion of cabile farming um, in the literature from, I think, the 60s. Um, and as the extensive literature on different forms of millenarianism makes clear, there are problems for humans who take literally injunctions such as live every day as if it were your last. There are people who have attempted to do that. Um, so in these terms you could see millenarian movements as a form of confusion between short-term and long-term futures although I'm not happy at such pejorative phrasing there I think there is something in that in a dissonance between short-term and long-term orientations which might be helpful in discussions of millenarianism generally um David Reason, who I've already mentioned, he talks about a string theory of time in which every moment is a slice of what he calls the more fundamental tufts and skeins of a temporality, um, which is constituted in threads of intentions. And that reminds me of um, Walter Benjamin talking, discussing Proust. He talks about convoluted time. And so again, the way past, present, futures interconnect is messier let's perhaps say that than the the accounts you get in philosophy um, we can also think uh, in time of trying to do something in time what Heidegger did um, for space when thinking about proximity he talks about how you know, a distant shop is more proximate to you than the, the pavement under your feet because you are going there. And so you can see, again, going back to millenarian movements, people thinking about end times, living their lives now in the, proxim- in, you know, the expectation of that they will die and go to, um, they hope, a better place. And then again you that there's a there's a an inter you know the convolution of of attitudes so um i in order to know who i am the society i live in now it implies that i can remember and understand something of my past but perhaps not too much you in order to act now you have to be able to forget some stuff um I act now in anticipation of being around to reap the consequences of my action, which again kind of links into a whole debate with Marilyn Strathern about partable peoples. Um, so all our nows, then, are sliding ensembles 
configure the poem and configuring pasts and futures. Every present moment includes within it its own casting of the past, its own casting of the future. Present and future pasts, present and future futures are not necessarily the same, although they often overlap to extents which invite the mistaken reading, usually of the past, as being invariant. Um, David Graeber, who, wearing different hats, is keen to think about radically different futures and pasts, he recognises the paradox of fortune, that those things that we cannot predict in the immediate future will seem to be inevitable after they have occurred. And this leads me to wonder why short-term prediction, you know, such as my list that I've already given you, seems mundane to the point of banality, but predictions into the longer term are fraught with difficulty and some would say impossibility. Predicting that it is safe to cross the road is different from predicting the winner of a horse race five years in the future. There seems to be a continuum between catching a ball, brewing beer, planting crops, and eventually the end of the world. Somewhere along that continuum, we want to start... I think we feel that quantitative change has affected a qualitative difference. But I don't see a philosophical difference there. And so... I'm not quite sure what that sort of continuum does back to philosophy. That's been mainly thinking about future orientations. What happens when we retrodict or project back into the pasts? Well, I think Kate's study of Kwanyama people is interesting here. Um, her analysis uses mimesis and identification and could actually tap into Louise's ideas of counter-transference. Um, viewers share the work with those on screen, even when this inc includes entering trance, which is called work in Kwanyama. Watching a film on material culture, as we've just done, a potter makes the gestures she is seeing. Such embodied viewing collapses or bridges time differences. Ritual from the 1930s has consequences 80 years later. Action in the 2010s, which inserts the power cotton material back into the Kwanyama local museum may be seen as contributing to an argument that Kwanyama identity has long been vast, concretizing or crystallizing it, um, localizing, locating it in time back to the 1930s. So Kate's actions may be seen to have consequences 80 years earlier. And this goes back to your question. Um, discussion, discuss, discussing images of slaves and the incompleteness of the visual record of slavery. Stephen Best uses the idea of deferred action. Only when an event is recognised later as significant did it take place. Does it become remembered? Memory happens when we remember. Archives are full of present events, the event of the researcher stumbling upon and creating the past. 
When I listen to a sound recording, I can hear my grandfather's voice. Looking at a photograph, I can see his face. Controversially, the art historian Kendall Walton describes this as looking through the photograph, as seeing across time. And that's been quite extensively discussed in art history. It's, well, there's an interesting discussion. Um, at some level of metaphorical remove, there is a strange form of sympathetic magic at play here. Hearing a voice across the decades, searing, seeing a face holding a lock of hair. Voices from the grave that have an emotive force on those who hear them. Conversely, there is redemptive force as we put names to the anonymous dead, as in Jules Michelet's resurrectionalist history, which anticipated the work of Foucault in the 19th century. Michelet's history brings the dead to life, especially by giving them names, more accurately by restoring knowledge of their names. Well, that train of thought started with some, some of the differences between short-term and long-term predictions. Um, the differences raise many types of questions. There are psychological issues, cultural issues, social issues. How do they interconnect? The examples of short-term prediction seem very different from actions taken on the basis of prediction and forecasting, where it seems we are consciously changing the future. And the kind of classic example is that of an education ministry or a city administration faced with demographic data which shows an increased number of babies being born, which when projected into the future implies that there will not be school places for those babies once they are of school age. The response is to build schools. If the schools had not been built, there would have been a crisis when the babies reached school age. They were built, so there was no crisis. What's the basis of the original prediction? Anticipation, prediction, acting to avert something, leaves possible futures hanging in ways that resemble the roads not taken in the past. So it seems to me that even a non-deterministic future can, in, can include a sort of thin red line threaded between counterfactuals after all. We might want to think of a thin pink line to mm -hmm. emphasise its difference. This establishes some more common ground between future and past. The specific philosophical outcome of this practical piece of management is that we have a problem assessing the truth, accuracy or validity of the prediction there will be no room left in the schools. Um, another way to approach um, interconnections is to think about causation. Anti-causation, retro-causation, how causation works across time. And again, classically in kind of the philosophical tradition, you think of time's arrow, that one of the ways, going back to Hume, that causation is identified is that a cause has to be ahead of its results. Um, but the example I've just given about building schools... Um, 
in all, which meant that a particular future did not arise could be described as a form of anti-causation or teleological action. Um, and Barbara Adam um, makes a similar point by saying that engagement with the future is an encounter with a non-tangible and invisible world that never, nevertheless has real and material consequences. What then... So much for the, for the future, but what then of retro-causation, changing the past? One set of examples may be summarised by the wonderful slogan, if you do not like the past, change it. Um, David Lowenthal, from which I've got that quote, um, it's not his phrase though, um, reviews way in which the stuff of history, monuments, memorials, change and are changed as different present understandings of the past themselves change in ways which are deeply political. Think of the way the Spanish Civil War is treated now by comparison to how it was under Franco. Bayat talks of a retrospective determination in which the past is made fixed by our reflection upon it. So it's only after its occurrence that people reconstruct symbolically the past so it acquires the status of the inevitable, unavoidable or predictable. Um, another approach can be taken from Freud. Um, Freudian theory has the, the, the term Nachtrichtlichkeit, if I've said it right, um, which is helpful to us here. Originally translated into English by Jones as deferred action, more recent work suggests reconstrual or retroactivity as a better gloss. It helps us see how pasts, presents and futures interrelate. We reconsider either pasts or futures, we change our understanding and the action that follow, the actions that follow from that understanding then change. In the past, looking back, we may change how we now think of the course the, red the thin red line was traced. Looking forwards into the future, we alter, we alter the course it will take by building schools in the present. So causality can be seen to extend both forward and backwards, which can be at least rhetorically described, described as um, altering pasts and futures. Bayard and um, Alfred Gell would want me to insist that this is rhetoric, as it uses a model that presumes the linearity of McTaggart's A-series, the idea of absolute positions in time colloquially dates from the B, which um, is distinguished from the B-series in which a shifting now contrasts with befores and afters. Um, and I'll skip that. Um, the people working on um, how to translate Nachtrachlichkeit um, are clear that the work of reconstruel consists of the present processing of memory traces, of material relating to the past in the present. And this resembles uh, Frigga Hoog's idea of memory work or remembrance that... Um, Redstone has used and can be used to unpack Lacan's um, retroaction, whereby l'effet d'après coup is effective along the reverse vector from the present towards the past. Now, 
I think Lacan is using a rhetorical extension himself, describing a present change in the understanding as a causal reconfiguration of the past. It is important, though, to recognise how close the two senses can be. In cases of trauma, violence and dispute, recognition and relabeling, sometimes long after the event, can be an important part of the process of healing. Healing possibly, but also maintaining political struggle. Clashes over archives, museums and archaeology, over how to care for the past, have present and future significance in, for example, Palestine, Israel, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, as well as Kenya, both dealing with Mau Mau, and um, one of the people who couldn't attend today was David Anderson, who's been one of the key players in using archival records which were whose existence was denied for a long time to get the British government to move. And more recently, in response to the 2007 election, um, there's a Cameroonian version of this with the involvement of the French army both before and after um, after independence and closer to home in Northern Ireland. So that's way, ways in which the philosophical positions can affect how um, archives and museums are affected. Um, how are we doing for time? Okay, I'll, I've got another take which is about causation and probability which takes us in different way in a somewhat different direction but it yeah it might be fun what does it mean to play the odds what does it mean to play the odds and lose is there any difference between these questions and what something what i regard of as an american style weather forecast reports 20 percent chance of rain. I go out without an umbrella and it doesn't rain. I go out without an umbrella and I get soaked. Apart from the obvious, is there any difference in the forecast between these events? Similar issues arise in Stephen Jay Gould's account of surviving abdominal mesothelemia, if I've pronounced it right, which We need to note that he survived for more than 20 years after diagnosis for a condition whose post-diagnosis median survival rate is eight months. And that's just the point he explored in writing before his eventual death from another illness. It helps make clear the difference between medical prognosis, sketching the range of outcomes and prediction of the outcome for a specific individual. Prognosis is explicitly a projection mediated by statistics from the past onto the future, onto a future population. So in Gould's case, the doctors tried to hide the the bleak prognosis from him. For an an individual, this is why the language of doctors can seem profoundly unhelpful. A prognosis explicitly does not predict what will happen in an individual case. 
Um, Roy Wagner, talking about this talk, says, in poker, the hand you are dealt is a perspective on the entire set of cards. He uses this to link to de Castro's perspectivalism, but I'm not quite sure if that's correct. I'd see a hand of cards as actually a sample from which you make inferences about the other cards. If you are lucky, that's how it pl plays out. If not, it doesn't mean that your inferences were wrong in principle, only that they were in this particular case. This is the difference between a statistical approach to a collectivity, a set or sample, a population, and that applied to a single, uh, to, to, to a single individual and possibly idiosyncratic cases. You may bet your house on a single game of poker, and you may lose to a quirk of the cards. It may be a consolation that it was a very unusual and unlikely outcome, but it it is what did eventuate. Some cosmologists take a similar position to the universe, extrapolating on the basis of what they call the anthropocentric principle. We can infer quite a lot about the boundary conditions, the starting point for the universe we live in, from the fact that it has at least one planet stable enough for quasi-intelligent life to evolve on. I'm not going to prejudge how questions about how intelligent that life is. Um, most values of the boundary conditions do not produce such stable planets, so our universe is unusual. We have won that deal. The philosophy of time confuses matters further, or perhaps I should say that work on the philosophy of time reveals that our conceptual basis is confused. There are paradoxes associated with wave particle duality which challenge our conceptual separation between now, the actual, and pasts and futures. So a photon can go through one or two slits and, as it were, bounces off, off the edge of the slit, and over time the results accumulate to, can, to create a familiar um, classical wave diffraction pattern. What that means is that an individual photon somehow is constrained, although that's probably not the right word, by past and future tracks of its fellow photons, even though the light density may be so low there's only ever one photon in the device at the same time. And there are other um, paradoxes arising from the reversibility of most physical processes except thermodynamics over time. So, just as we have long been sceptical about the idea of a view from nowhere, Hugh Price argues there is no view from no when. Positionality, perspectivalism is time-anchored time as well as being from a viewpoint. Having acknowledged the complexity and difficulty of developing a philosophy of time which can accommodate our asymmetric unidirectional experience of time and the symmetries of physics I'm going to leave these issues for the philosophers and turn to our relationship to and the planning of archives but trying to keep these thorny problems in mind Planning future archives. If we write on paper 
if we dig foundations to our houses, we can have some confidence that we will leave traces that will be interpretable quite long into the future, into the futures, I now should say. The way much of contemporary life is organised is not this way. Text messages, email, digital documents are to say the very least fragile. It is entirely possible that future historians will have less material to study than we have. One case in point might be the records of Cameroonian censuses. I know that the 1986 census returns were typed into a computer, but I do not think the digital files have been preserved. And I, yeah, as far as I can tell, that's the case. I've done work on um, some Cameroonian photo archives, and there are some examples on the back, and I should warn you, these are partly distressing there are distressing photographs at the top less distressing on the bottom um, where but I am concerned that future photograph future photographic archives where the switch to digital photography means there's going to be less legacy of Cameroonian photographers from the 2000s than there is from the 1970s or 1980s to use Barbara Adams' idea, I think we should reflect on our time prints. The parallel is with the idea of an ecological footprint. A time print is our impress on history and beyond. This points to a seriously large-scale temporal perspective as exemplified by archaeology, the discipline which deals with human time prints across millennia. There are some other provocative examples. For example, um, Christine Thin talked um, about being an archaeologist in Silicon Valley. Another one is from the Long Now Foundation, who try and think about what it is to build a clock that will last 10,000 years, and they always put a zero in front of dates, so it is now 02013. Um, and um, earlier, Brian Durrans did work on time capsules and trying to think about what a time capsule made in the 19th century says about the people creating them. Um, and as I wrote last year, I think, misquoting John Maynard Keynes, in the long term, we are at best archaeology. Um, so, if we turn to some case studies, which I'm going to mainly skip, I just wanted to point out, all I'll do is now point out, is why it helps to look at controversies, because in looking at what is being argued about, it helps make clear things that are there anyway with long, less controversial um, examples but um, they are made um, explicit I, um, all I want to do I, all I'll flag is another take on those nice photographs at the bottom the point about putting them at the on the same sheet of paper as the disturbing severed heads is that they were taken more or less in the same places um, at 
not quite the same time, but quite soon afterwards, when in order to stage a wedding, in uh, the middle photograph is a funeral celebration. In order to perform the everyday, it was an achievement in the face of a very tightly controlled police state. And so I'm trying to look at this photographic archive, which is a celebration of the mundane, of a girlfriend and a boyfriend posing, I think, delightfully. Um, uh, um, And it's the local reading, especially when those photographs were taken, is itself as not exactly a moment of defiance or protest, but um, it was not... To be able to get those photographs taken was not then a Monday in an everyday act in a weird sort of way. So the everyday I'm seeing as as an achievement, a social achievement in the face of what's not in those photographs. And one of my problems with the main photographic archive I've created is that although the photographer did take photographs for the police, unlike almost all his other clients, they took the negatives. So there is this lacuna in the archive of the negatives that are not there. And what I've got are the, the um, more everyday. Um, so it's a way, um, this is to, uh, a way of um, taking a more historiographically inflected view. Um, and... Um, I mean, there are kind of um, historical presents which I'll skip over. Let me just um, very quickly give you some conclusions and then we can go and have lunch. Um, my conclusion is that things change as we liberalise and pluralise our notions of pasts, presents, futures. Recognising that all are polyvalent, intercalated and multi-perspectival, we need to adjust our planning of the archives and museums that accompany us. I think what I've been saying can be... um, what I've been saying can be summarised as an argument for a chronotype which is symmetrical across um, pasts and futures. And that, um, as I think Bren was saying, uh, chronotypes builds on Bakhtin's idea of the chronotope. Uh, a consequence of this is that we have to start thinking of thin red lines extending forwards from the presence, perhaps, um, yeah, as I've said, into pink. Um, include so our thinking forwards can include a miasma of roads not to be taken, which scenario planning can crystallise by concentrating on the more extreme examples, and perhaps we'll talk more about that this this afternoon. In contemporary Europe and North America, part of our time print is a digital one maintained in large part by private corporations and, as we learned this month, mined by security services, perhaps to few people's surprise. Um, 
Leaving aside the politics and arguments about justification for surveillance, I fear that this creates a terrible environment for establishing long-term archives. I've already mentioned the strong likelihood that relatively few African of relatively few African photographs surviving in, from the beginning of this century. As we plan archival structures in our presence for possible futures and reconceived pasts, we are dealing in so many ways with fragile and delicate material. Material which must be cherished so some future audience can make it sing, or if not always sing, at least make it engage it in conversation. Let me put it like that. And on that um, mildly optimistic note, I will stop. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you.